wonderful. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to 1 Peter chapter number 1. And thank you, worship team, for that uh, wonderful, wonderful help on uh, the music this morning and uh, leading us in our time of worship through praise. And now we want to get into our time of worship through the Word. And, uh, and we're going to be studying in 1 Peter chapter number 1. We started this series last week, and we said this is a letter of hope written to uh, a people that needed hope, uh, that were going through different kind of trials and tribulations in their life, and, and, uh, and hope was going to be what uh, gave them the strength to endure. And, and we learned a little bit about the author. The author is Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, a man that was changed by the power of God, a man that was used greatly in the kingdom of God uh, as God's hand rested upon him. He was a, a powerful preacher of God's word, and, uh, and his ministry saw a lot of fruit from that work. And so he, he's writing to uh, many that have been dispersed in different parts. And in fact, in verse number one, he talks about the different areas, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, just different cities in the Roman Empire where they had been scattered and many of them fleeing persecution, others looking for a better economic opportunity in life and, and others just simply uh, maybe moving because there's family in different areas or maybe for the sake of the gospel to, to share with their friends and family the message that they had received there in, in Jerusalem and in, in other cities where they'd heard the gospel. So Peter's writing to this audience and the aim we learned was to experience all of grace in their life, to have peace in their life. At the very end of verse number two, he says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you. And, and so the aim of this letter is to give us hope so that we might experience all of the grace of God in our life and have a life that is filled with joy and peace. Now notice when you get into verse number three that he begins to speak on this topic of hope. Now the Christian life is a life of hope. It is hope that gives us as Christians strength when we feel weak. It is hope that gives us joy when we feel sad and discouraged. It is hope that gives us as Christians peace when the storms of life arise from the different experiences of life. It is hope that makes the Christian life so different from every other life and from every other religion. You know, many religions teach many things about who they believe God is. But it's the Christian faith that teaches about hope. It's the Christian faith that teaches about love. It's the Christian life, then, the Christian faith that teaches a different kind of living. A living hope. Now, what is hope? If the Christian faith teaches us about hope, and hope is what gives us strength. What exactly is hope? How would we define hope? The world defines hope as something that, that might happen by chance. There's, there's maybe like a wish or a dream that is coming, and that's, that is defined by the world as hope. But the Christian life doesn't define it that way. Hope is more than just positive thinking. I heard a story about... Um, a little league uh, game that was going on one afternoon and uh, a man was watching the game and he looked at the scoreboard and the score was 18 to zero. 
And uh, the man saw this little boy. He was in the dugout. He was there sitting, and and um, he he went up to the boy and and he said, "Wow, listen, uh, I, I see the score. You're down eighteen to zero. You you must be a little discouraged by that. I mean, you you, you got to feel a little bit a little bit down about what the score is right now. A little bit discouraged by the situation." And the the little boy looked at at the man and he said, "Why should I be discouraged?" We haven't even had a chance to bat yet. Sometimes, as Christians, we look at hope that way. Ah, oh, it's just having a positive spin. And when things are going bad, it's, hey, the best is yet to come. But that's not what hope is in the Christian life. It's not a positive thought. It's something that you can be sure in. It's something that you can be confident about. In this passage, Peter begins by sharing what the message of hope truly is. So I want you to notice this. Look in verse number three. We're going to read from verse number three down to verse number five, 1 Peter chapter one. And I want you to see that the focus here that Peter is going to talk about is the hope that we have as Christians. He writes this. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What is the hope according to this passage that we have as Christians, well, if you have your notes this morning, you can fill in the blank. Hope, hope is something that is sure and secure. The hope of the Christian is the future glory of a life that is eternal and full of unrestrained joy with God. The hope of a Christian is the future glory of a life that is eternal and full of unrestrained joy with God. The hope that Peter is writing about is that exactly right there, a future glory. The hope is not our present situation, but rather a future glory. A future glory of eternal life, a future glory of unrestrained joy in our existence, in our life with God. So understanding the definition of hope this morning, I want to share three truths about a Christian's hope that Peter's talking about. He's talking about hope. He starts in verse number three with the word blessed. That means it's the, it's the Greek word where we get the word eulogy. And, and he's praising God for this hope. He said, blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's saying we ought to exalt the name of God and our Father Jesus uh, and the Father uh, because of the hope that we have. Now, I want you to notice the source of our hope. He begins talking about praising God for this hope of whom God is the source of our hope. The message of hope is our salvation and future of new life in heaven. It's not simply joy and peace. It's not that everything is always going to be good with no hard or difficult days in life. That's not the hope. It's the message that we have a new life and a new nature. 
uh, that, that God sent his only begotten son to this earth to die for your sin and for mine so that we might have a future glory. That is the hope. Now, the source of that hope, where does that come from? Peter says, from God, our Father. Now, notice that it is God and Father that through abundant mercy gives us this hope. It begins with the mercy of God. Salvation is initiated all by God first. It was God who loved us first, not that we loved God first. It was God that um, took the first step, not that we took the first step. It was God in eternity past seeing our condition and what sin was going to do to us that decided he would have mercy on us. Notice what Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 through 5 says. It says once... And this is from the New Living Translation. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. But notice what verse 4 says, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Mercy is withholding what we deserve. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. And so Paul was reminding the Christians in Ephesus, God's mercy is so much that he loved us and sent his son to die for us. And because he is a God of grace, he gives us salvation. He didn't sell it to us. He didn't say you have to earn it. Uh, He didn't say there's these certain requirements that you have to do to get it. By God's grace, through faith, faith is believing God through faith. By believing God, we receive the grace of God, which is salvation. Where did that all start? From the mercy of God. You know, the Bible has a lot to tell us about mercy. A lot to tell us about mercy. In fact, in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and verse 23, it says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Mercy is God's kindness and goodwill towards us and not condemning us for our sin, but rather giving us what we don't deserve. Look at Titus chapter three. I have it in your notes, verse four and verse five. But after that, the kindness and love of our God or of God, our savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. The source then of our hope comes from the mercy of God. And I love that Peter points this out. He, he points out the trinity of who our God is, by the way. Do you know that God is three persons in one? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There are three persons in the Godhead, but only 
one God. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, uh, the, the word of God says, Hear, O Israel, thy God is only one God. The Lord is one God. And yet there's three persons in the Godhead, and each one took part in the hope in which we have. It was God the Father who had mercy on us. I love that he used the title, by the way, and this is just a side note you can put in your notes, God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it, it sees how the Godhead works together. As God, that is the attitude that Christ had towards the Father. And then the title and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is God the Father's attitude towards his Son. They're not competing. They're both equally God, but their roles are different in the person that they are. God as our Father had mercy on us. God as the Son had the miraculous work of the cross. We find that the source of our hope begins with God's mercy, but it's completed with the miraculous work of Jesus Christ. It was Jesus who gave his life as a ransom for many. It was Jesus who dwelt among us and is the light of our salvation, John chapter 1. It is Jesus who died on the cross for the sins of the world that's found in 1 John. And it was Jesus who was resurrected from the grave to make the new birth possible. Uh, Peter writes to you who have received that salvation just think about it and remember what that salvation is. It's the hope. The hope of future glory. The hope that we have received by the mercy of God and through the work of Jesus Christ. It says, who hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, we said, uh, we find that Jesus was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. In Romans 5, verse 10, if we, when we were enemies, were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall, ha we shall be saved by his life. In other words, we've been giving a new nature through the work of Christ on the cross. We have been begotten again you ever heard the term i've been born again you find that in john chapter 3 when jesus is talking to nicodemus he says unless you're born again you shall not see the kingdom of heaven nicodemus was a little confused how how am i going to be born again am i going to go back into my mother's womb i mean that's that's impossible jesus said well you're you're a teacher of the law and you, you don't know this principle being born again is to be born of the spirit you see, when we were born in sin, our spirit was dead. We had no relationship with God. In fact, we were enemies of God. But you see, that God that we were enemies with is rich in mercy. And by his mercy, he loved us and sent his son to die for us. And by his son dying on the cross and resurrecting from the dead, he gives us this hope of being born again. That's what Peter is saying. Remember that we have been begotten again. We've been born again. That means there's new life. That means that our hope is a living hope. Peter writes, 
being resurrected to a lively, being begotten again unto a lively hope. Some translations have it a living hope. Because it is alive, it means it gives us life. Because this hope is is something that is uh, life-giving, it sustains us. It is something that connects with our existence after life on this planet. Did you know that we will not live on this planet forever? In fact, I know we don't really have newspapers circulating like in the old days. But in the newspaper, you'll find there's a section, for those that are still in print, that says obituary. And in that section of obituary, it has different details of people that have died. And every day, the newspapers that are printed will print that because someone is dying every day. We live on a planet that reminds us that death is very real. That it can happen to anyone, no matter how rich or how poor we are. No, much, no matter how much power we may have and what position in life we have, death comes for us all. So when we talk about the hope in the Christian life, we're talking about something that's alive, not something that's dead. Something that has defeated death. Something that's beyond what this life offers. The hope that we have has to do with what happens after this life, not what happens in this life. I'm going to say that again because as Christians, I think we forget this so much. I'm guilty of that just as much as anybody else. The hope that we have has to do with what happens after this life, not in this life. Sometimes as Christians, we go through difficult times and difficult trials and we think, well, well, why isn't things changing? I mean, if God is with me, I shouldn't have to go through this. I shouldn't have to face this kind of difficulty physically, this illness or this disease. I mean, if, if God is with me, I shouldn't have to have the financial worries that I have. I mean, if God's presence is real in my life, then why is my family and my marriage struggling so much? Many times what we think is that the hope of the Christian life is to be lived right now. But the hope is a future glory. The hope is what gets you through right now. It's thinking about a day in which there won't be no more struggles. A day where there will be no more sickness. The hope is what happens after this life. Our hope is what is to come. There's that very popular book, Your Best Life Now. Can I tell you for the Christian, your best life is not now. It's still to come. There's a, there's a much better life than what you got going on right now. Now, you, you might be very successful right now, and, and things might go, be going great in your life and in the relationships of life. But it's still not the best. For a Christian, the best is yet to come. That's why Peter writes, a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's talking about a a hope that is alive and a hope that's coming, a future glory. So the source of our hope is the mercy of God and the work of Jesus Christ. 
But what is the surety of our hope? And why, what I mean by surety is, is how, how can we be so sure that what we believe is true? How can we be so sure that we got it right and everyone else got it wrong? For people, people describe it that way. Oh, you Christians just think you know everything. How can you be so presumptuous? How can you tell other religions that they're false and wrong and be so presumptuous as to say that you're right? Where is the surety of our hope? Well, that hope is because it's a promise. And a promise is only as good as the person that's given that promise. If someone is a liar and you know that they're a liar and they promise you something, you don't believe them. In fact, that promise means nothing. Because you say, it might come true, it may not. Most likely that guy lies a lot. What he's saying, not going to happen. He might promise you that he's going to give. He might promise you that he's going to help. He might promise you that he'll be there for you. But he never is. He always flakes out. He always has a reason for why he didn't do what he said he was going to do. So the promise means nothing. Unless the person that's making the promise is dependable. Unless the person that makes the promise cannot lie. Did you know that the Bible says that God cannot lie? Being a God that is holy, he has no sin in him, so he cannot lie. So when he promises something about a future hope, you can believe it. I've been reading through Jeremiah in my daily reading in the book of Jeremiah. It's in the Old Testament. And during the time of Jeremiah and in his ministry and in his life, it was the time when God was allowing Babylon to come and conquer the people of Israel. And the people of Israel were thinking, that will never happen. God has always delivered us from our enemies. He's never going to let uh, Babylon to, to come in and, and, uh, and, and overtake us and to conquer us. And, and Jeremiah's message to the people was, actually, you got that wrong. God is going to allow it. Because of your sin, God is allow, allowing Babylon to to overtake you and to conquer you and, and they're going to exile you out of this land and, and God's message to, to us as a people is because we've sinned against him, because we've stopped following after him, then, then there is some judgment and consequences for that. And it's funny because if you read, you'll find that Jeremiah told the leaders this. And there was other prophets that were different from Jeremiah that were telling the leadership Telling the king and, and the royal palace uh, what today would be the president and the prime ministers and the, and the government people. They were telling, oh, no, 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 no. Don't worry about Babylon. God, it's going to be fine. Jeremiah, he, he's a liar. You can't trust that. And Jeremiah said, well, we'll just see. The Bible says, according to the prophet, if his prophecy comes true, then he is speaking for me. And if it doesn't, you know, I did not lead him. You know what happened? Babylon came and conquered and took a handful captive back to Babylon and left just someone to start guarding those that were left of Israel, the remnant that were there. They left a different king. They took the king that was there and they plucked his eyes out and they took him back to Babylon. And it's funny because the people that stayed had been there and heard Jeremiah say what he was going to say. They saw that God allowed and did what he said he was going to do. They came and asked Jeremiah a second time, Jeremiah, what should we do? 
And here's what Jeremiah says. He says, you know what? You should turn yourselves into Babylon. If you turn yourselves into Babylon, God has promised that he will bless you and God will protect you and he'll make sure that Babylon ain't gonna do nothing to you. And the reason he was given that message is because some people had rebelled against the leader that Babylon had left there and murdered him. So now they were thinking, now we rebelled against the Babylonian government. They're gonna come back. They're gonna torture us. They're gonna kill us. And now Jeremiah is saying, no, they're not gonna do that. Yeah, all right. And even though Jeremiah, they knew, was speaking for God, and they asked him and they said, Jeremiah, whatever God tells you to do, we're going to do it. And Jeremiah tells them, and you know what they said? You're a liar. No, we're going to go to Egypt. Egypt's going to protect us. Jeremiah said, you go to Egypt, and that guarantees you that you will be destroyed. They went to Egypt. Why do I say all that? Because when God says something, he does it. When he pronounces judgment, judgment comes. When he promises life, he gives life. When he promises you a future glory, that hope is as sure as anything else that you can see or have. And notice in verse number four, speaking of this living hope, He writes to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away. The Christian's hope is guaranteed. It's not something that has a risk of being lost or stolen or misplaced. It's 100% guaranteed. And look at the qualities that it has. Look at the qualities. It says, he writes, it is an inheritance. Now, inheritances are what we receive from someone else, and usually they involve something of value, right? You can inherit a house, you can inherit money, you can inherit things, and they usually have value to them. And what Peter's reminding the Christians that are reading this letter, he's reminding them of the inheritance that they have. That hope is an inheritance that has been promised to us in fact the the greek word here is kleronomia and it it means it had it had a connection to do with an inheritance of property and so they would use this word to to give the the visual mindset the inheritance is something real it's something that you get it's something tangible the hope that we have is a living hope that is something tangible It's an inheritance that we are receiving. Now, notice the qualities of this inheritance. He says, first of all, it's incorruptible. Now, if you're taking notes, notice that this means it will not decay. Incorruptible means it will not decay. You know, we live in a world full of decay. I I don't know how many of you have, um, have been to... Uh, San Antonio and visited the Alamo. But I I like museums and you go to museums. I love seeing the things of the past, but when you're there, you'll find that everything's in a state of decay. The museum, the purpose of it is to try to preserve some of the history and some of the artifacts from back then. In fact, uh, with the Alamo, they, they have to do like redo things. I don't know, every like five years or something, every 10 years, I don't know, something like that. But they, they got to work on the Alamo itself. 
kind of repainting it and re, remaking it so it can look somewhat of what it used to look like. Because if you just leave the building there, it starts to decay. You go into the Alamo and, and you can see things like Davy Crockett's gun. Usually it's like right behind the glass. And maybe you, you've seen it. And uh, if you've got kids like, like mine, like Elijah, he, he, he always asks me anytime we're in there, can, can I get the gun? Can you get it from behind the glass? I'm like, ah, sorry, buddy. I, I can't do that. You know, the museum doesn't let you touch that because there are particles on our skin that will be left there and will contribute to it decaying. In fact, the people that do handle it when they're actually having shows have to wear gloves to make sure that they're not putting anything dirty on that. They constantly have to take it out of the glass and they have to try to reshine it and put some protective oils on it to preserve it because naturally it'll decay. In fact, you can go to another section and there's all kinds of artifacts. There's like knives, they're all rusted. There's like tomahawks and things and axes that are all just rusted and they're all behind glass and they're all trying to be preserved because it decays. Now notice the hope that we have as Christians. Peter says it does not decay. The inheritance that we have does not decay. It's something that is always there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54, it says, When this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Paul was thinking about this very truth when he says incorruptible. The inheritance that we have, the future glory, is a body that's not going to be decaying. It's a world that's not going to be decaying. It's incorruptible. He said the salvation that you have isn't going to just decay. The future glory, you can depend on it because the quality of it is incorruptible. You can think about inheritances that we get whether they're money or houses or land, and it all decays, but not, not the hope of salvation. Not our future glory, not our future bodies. Not only is it incorruptible, it says it's undefiled. This speaks to the purity of this inheritance. In other words, it's not contaminated. Not only do we live in a world that is decaying, we live in a world that is contaminated. Sin contaminated this world. It made each and every one of us ugly and unkind. And that's why we can read stories in the newspapers of people that abuse children. Of homicides of the most gruesome kind. We say, well, that's not me, that's them. But you know the very nature that moved them to do that is the very nature that you and I have. Because we're contaminated. Sin contaminated our thoughts. It contaminated our words. It contaminated how we treat one another. But the hope of future glory is undefiled. In fact, I put it in your notes. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 27. It's talking about the new heaven, the new Jerusalem. It says, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth. 
Anything that is unpure, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those that are going, and it's talking in that passage of the, the temple in the New Jerusalem. In that place, there will be no contamination. There won't be people going to that temple with selfish motives. There won't be people walking in there with hard hearts, anger issues, or hateful desires. No. That hope is undefiled. That future glory will have no contamination in it. Then notice the third phrase, it will not fade away. So what does that phrase mean about our inheritance, our hope? It means it will not suffer loss of value, beauty, or glory. In other words, it's time-proof. This inheritance doesn't lose its value. There are things that lose their value. Even money loses its value, right? In our economy, we call that inflation, right? It's, it's when the price of bread goes up, but your paycheck stays the same. That means your dollar lost value. What used to buy five loaves of bread maybe buys one loaf of bread now. It lost value. But the inheritance that we have of future glory, that promise, that hope, which is a a confident thing we can be sure in, will not lose any value, any beauty. Listen, a thousand years from now, salvation will be just as beautiful as it is today. It's an inheritance that fadeth not away. Ezekiel chapter 47 verse 12 speaks of that that does not fade away. We see the surety of it in its qualities, but also its reservation, its reserved. Verse 4 concludes, reserved in heaven for you. This inheritance is reserved. I love this. It's the, it's the Greek word tireo, or tireo and, and it, it means it's being guarded or watched over. Now think about this. The promise of future glory is being guarded by God himself for you. I love reservations. I, I'm sure you've, you've had reservations at some point in your life. Maybe you've had dinner reservations. You know what a dinner reservation means? It means nobody will be sitting at your table when you get there. When you reserve a hotel room, that means that when you get to the hotel, that room is waiting for you. The, the, the reservation holds a place especially for you. You rent a car with a reservation. And so when you get to Enterprise or Dollar or wherever you're renting the car from, the car's there waiting for you. Got the keys and a full tank of gas. The Bible says our inheritance is reserved for us, for you. Our hope, our confident expectation is that this future glory we have is being guarded by an all-powerful God. You know what? Nobody steals from God. Nobody takes it away. I know it's not in the news all the time, but if you look up on Google, people that have their inheritance stolen from them, some of those stories are tragic. 
Sometimes you have spouses fighting against one another for an inheritance. Sometimes you have siblings fighting with one another. Sometimes you have siblings killing one another over an inheritance. Trying to take it. Remember Jacob and Esau, you even see this years ago in the Bible. Trying to steal the inheritance one from another. But the inheritance that we have from God is being watched out by God. Peter's just saying, just remember. Remember this. You have a source of hope because God is rich in mercy. And because Jesus did the work on the cross to give you that salvation. That future glory. And that future glory, Peter says, is an inheritance. It's an inheritance that is incorruptible. It's not going to decay. It's undefiled. It's not contaminated by anything. It's pure. And it fadeth not away. It doesn't lose its value. And it's waiting for you and for me. You know, I remember thinking when I was young, or younger, because I'm still young, I remember thinking, I want God to take his time to come back. I've not been married yet. I don't have kids. I don't have a job. I want to experience all of that. And I remember just thinking, like, if he could just hold on for maybe like 30 more years, maybe 50 more years, and I'll, I'll be okay. You know, as I get older, as I meditate more on that inheritance, I think about it now and I go, what are you thinking? Why would you want to wait for that? (laughs) Why not, as soon as you can, come? You know why many times in my life I've wanted him to wait? Because more of my life was filled with things now. And I thought the hope of the Christian life was God's going to give me and bless me now instead of understanding that the hope is future. God, hope for us is not a better house now. He may bless us with one, but that's not the hope. It's not the newest and nicest car, though he might give us a new and nice car, but that's not the hope. Because those things decay. Those things don't matter. Look at the pharaohs with all their wealth. They're buried. They left it all here for museums to discover and try to keep from decaying. But not the inheritance that we have. And let me give you this quickly because time has already gone by. The security of our hope. The security of our hope. The security is that we are kept. We are kept. In verse number five, who are kept by the power of God? Now, let me just give you this thought with that phrase. What does an inheritance matter if you're not around to get it? If Elon Musk called you up today and said, listen, I want to leave you an inheritance. And in two years, I want you to have my fortune. I don't know what it's up to now. It's like 90 billion or something. I don't know. Or, or no, like 120 billion, right? Something like that. If he said in two years it's going to be yours, as awesome as that might be of an inheritance, 120 billion dollars, 
what does it matter if you're not here in two years? What happens if you die in a month? <laughs> what does that inheritance matter? God has promised us a future glory where there's no contamination, where it's not going to decay, where it's always going to have this eternal value. It's never going to lose its beauty and its value. But what does that matter unless we're there to enjoy it? And that's why Peter says, that's why we are kept by God. See, the reservation is guarded by God, but God is also with you to make sure you get that to that reservation. To make sure you receive what has been promised to you. It's just a small word, uh, word who are kept, but the implications are huge. You're not going to lose this inheritance because you let God down. Sometimes we think, man, I haven't been living right. Maybe, 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 maybe God's not he's going to take away my crowns. No, he's not. He's kept you for it. John chapter, verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus said, I, I have the, those that are in my hand. No one should pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And I and my Father are one. The security of our hope is that we are kept by him. Number two is that we will, it will be revealed. At the end of verse number five, it says the hope is going to be revealed. It's a reality that is yet to come to pass. Our hope is not a pie in the sky thought that sounds nice. It's a reality that will be revealed one day. In fact, the phrase that Peter writes here, so much to those that have this hope. The word revealed means revelation. The revelation that he's talking about is Jesus coming again. When Jesus comes again, we will have a new body given to us. That's when we receive our inheritance. That's when our hope becomes reality. Peter says it's going to come. It's going to be revealed. The word prepared there, or the word ready means prepared. There's nothing lacking for this to happen. Jesus could come any day, any moment. Let me tell you something that's pretty awesome to think about. If he waits till tomorrow, the inheritance will be there tomorrow. And God will keep you for it. One day he will reveal it. So this morning we've seen our hope as something more than just a wish. Or a dream, it's a confident expectation. We can be confident in it because of who promised it. God promised it to you and me. The hope that we have this morning comes because God is merciful to us and Jesus died for us. Here's what I would say, number one, just in a practical application. If you've not accepted Jesus as your personal savior, you're missing out on the greatest inheritance you could ever have. And it's worth more than $120 billion dollars. Because 100 years from now, 120 billion won't buy you what it buys you today. It loses its value. And it decays. And it's so contaminated. 
Oh, but the hope of future glory, that salvation and a new nature and being born again, man, that is something that never fades away. If you've not trusted Christ as your Savior, you ought to trust Him today. But I would say, if you're here and you've already trusted Christ as your Savior, then I would just say this hope is the greatest, the greatest thing you can share. I want to encourage you this week, whenever you're talking with somebody at work, Share with them the hope that you have. Listen, when you're alone at home, think about the inheritance that's been given to you. Think about the future glory. Because it's an amazing hope. The message this morning isn't to try to get you to go do something. It's simply to reflect about what you've already been given. The hope that you have. Peter writes this and he says, man, if you're going to experience all of grace and have peace in your life, understand the hope that you've been given. It's that future glory of unrestrained joy with God. Man, what is hope doing for you today? Man, if it doesn't get you excited about God coming, if it doesn't get you excited about the future, I don't know what will. I mean, just remember, at one point, A 1955 Chevy was new, and now it's an oldie. It's back in the past. What I'm talking about is something that never goes past. It's never something that turns old. It's an amazing hope that we have. I hope it encourages you this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love and for your care and for the hope that we have. Oh, Father, it's amazing when we think about what we've received, when we think about the inheritance that we have in you. Father, I pray that we'd meditate upon this hope. So many times we think that the hope of the Christian life is here in this, in this world, and that it's this hope that will give us, get us out of the present situation or trial or tribulation, and yet uh, Peter's not talking about the here and now. He's talking about what is to come. Our best life is still ahead of us. And the best version of ourselves has yet to be revealed. Oh, Father, I pray that we'd meditate upon the great salvation that we have received, that we would think about how abundantly merciful you've been. We think about the work of Christ on the cross and what it did for us and what it's given us. Father, help us to live in that kind of hope. Because that's a life-giving hope. That's a life-changing hope. Help us to not look at it as some just religious message. Help us to see it as it is in reality. A future hope of glory through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Help us to live and meditate and work within that hope. I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.